Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 125, covering Michael Shea's A Quest for Symbolists. And with me today is that roguish spell peddler, Hoy. Spellmonger, I'll have you know. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Peddling and mongering. And with us today, we have the founder of The Gauntlet, any winning podcaster, creator of Brindlewood Bay and The Between, and head of Gauntlet Publishing, Jason Cordova. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. Hi, Jason. Yeah. Such a pleasure to have you on. Oh, thank thanks you. Thanks for being on the show. And it's like a murderer's row of uh, of uh, accomplishments there, Jason. We'll, oh, we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And right before we started recording, you were saying that this isn't the kind of podcast you're used to being on. And mm. I, I, I just want to say, like, I am so grateful for all of our guests because we ask so much more of our guests than the normal <laughs> RPG podcast does. Right, yeah. Normally, because I've been on so many of these RPG podcasts too, where it's just like, hey, you want to be on the show? And then you just show up and you just kind of bullshit just, about yeah, some exactly, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Talk about what you already know. <laughs> but we're like, no, can you read this like several hundred page novel <laughs> right. and give us your thoughts about it from a literary and gaming perspective? And it, yeah. it's a big ask. So yeah, thanks yeah. for being willing to do this. No, you bet. I'm happy to be here. Thanks. <laughs> Yeah. So, Jason, what is your what is your backstory with gaming and with speculative fiction? Let us know a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. So, my gaming uh, origin story is pretty straightforward. I started gaming in the fourth grade um, when I was ten years old. This was years and years ago. Um, I, I my dad used to take me to this comic book shop in Oceanside, California, and they had the Marvel superheroes box set role-playing game. And I had no idea what it was, but I wanted it. And so he bought it for me and I read it for two months and had no idea what it was. Like, it was just like a complete black box of like, what is this? And then, um, but an older kid came over and taught me how to play it. And it was, uh, it, it, it was it was for me. I decided that was for me. And so yeah, that's kind of where I start, started my gaming. Speculative fiction is maybe um, a little less interesting uh, story because I have to tell you, um, fantasy and stuff is not my genre. I have I can count the number of fantasy books I've read on like both hands. Like it's really like small number of books, and so um, I guess I'm more of a uh, I'm more of a like I do like lo- like Lovecraftian like cosmic horror. I like that, and I like horror oh, yeah. in general. And um, but I mostly read historical fiction. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, fantasy books. Like I've read, like I mean, I can just tell you all of them. I've read like Lord of the Rings. I've read um, like a couple of Drizzt Doerden books back when I was really doing AD and D two E pretty heavy. Um, And uh, oh, and I really like the Scott Lynch Gentleman Bastard books. Those are quite good. Um, But but yeah, that's about. I don't know. It's kind of not my genre. So I, I hope I have something to contribute here today. <laughs> no, and this is great because your, yeah. your story is actually very similar to mine. I started gaming when I was 10. Mm-hmm. I had my little comic book store that I was obsessed with that like really got me excited about these things. And prior to starting this project, I wasn't a big fantasy reader either. Yeah. I mostly did uh, literary fiction, um, some horror, mm-hmm. um, but I was not much of a science fiction or fantasy reader mm-hmm. prior to this project. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jason, it's interesting that you mentioned Marvel superheroes because, I mean, while it's an 
technically, I guess, an old school game. It's one of the first games that's sort of more story forward in a way. I think than, so, yeah. yeah. Then, like, you know, your AD&D, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if that really kind of informed, uh, given, like, the Gauntlet's sort of, yeah. you know, reputation, if that really kind of informed the whole, you know, your well, you whole know, game. That's, that's a great question. You know, I, um, to go back to my story of, like, that older kid kind of, like, teaching me how to play it, I, like, have a really, really distinct memory of that first game, the first role-playing game I ever played, right? Um I was playing. I think I was playing. I was playing a villain who like could control electricity or something because that was probably the coolest thing I could think of when I was in the fourth grade. Um, and I was robbing a jewelry store. And I remember the the kid. He was like, "Well, what do you do?" You know, because he was like kind of presented the situation. He was like, "Well, what do you do?" And I was like, "Well, I mean, what do you, what do you mean? What do you do? Like, I don't, what do you mean? Like, do I roll these dice? Like, I don't know what that means." And he's like, "No, just tell me what you do." And I remember that like just speaking aloud like what my character was doing, irrespective of like what these like books wanted me to like you know mechanically do i guess like like just speaking loud and saying it describing it like that felt like a very powerful thing to do it felt like a really cool like i mean like that was really what hooked me and then what i love about that story is because you know years later you know our our thing in the gauntlet is you know like powered by the apocalypse games or what we're really like you know truly into and known for and um and that's one of that you know apocalypse world's core things is you ask the players what do you do? Right. Like it, it's, it's such a, it's such a simple thing. It's a simple concept, but, um, but yeah, it, it's like really, really found like kind of foundational to how I play role-playing games. And so, yeah, it, it, Marvel superheroes kind of was, it really was kind of more like narrative forward, I guess, than mechanical mm-hmm. forward. Although I love face rip that, that chart is like my, I, love oh, yeah, I have so much affection for that chart. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was, it's just interesting sort of these evolutionary paths, not taken like those charts or yeah. I think the James Bond role-playing game had something really interesting in that sim- something similar in that regard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I have to, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, but you know, the paths not taken, um, <laughs> yeah. but they're somehow being rediscovered in a way, maybe not purely mechanically, but the, the approach is, yeah, is there, absolutely. You know? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, Jason, which edition of Michael Shea's A Quest for Symbolists are you working with today? I, I don't know which edition it is, but I got it from the Kindle bookstore. I read it on my Kindle, on my iPad. And I have to tell you, I have never been uh, happier to have a built-in dictionary than I was for when reading <laughs> this book. Uh, I, oh, for sure. I think I used the dictionary feature of the Kindle app like 300 times while reading this. And I'm a pretty well-spoken guy. So I was like, whoa, there's a lot of vocabulary here. Vocabulary here. Uh, but yeah, I was doing the Kindle edition, whatever that is. There's two big white troll things on the front. So, yeah. Yeah, I've also I was working with the same version. It's the Spatterlight First Edition 2020 Kindle ebook. Um, yeah, with the big yep. trolls on the cover. Right. Uh, same, same. So, uh, do we know who that artist is? Um, I do not, but let me see if it shows up on uh, IMDb. It looks like it is on ISFDB. ISFDB. Yeah, it does not say here. Yeah, I don't see it on here either. Yeah. So unknown author, uh, unknown artist, at least to us. <laughs> yeah, let me but, see if it actually um, shows up in the book credits, but yeah. Cool. And then speaking of fancy words, Hoy, do we have a Hygaxian <laughs> word of the day? Oh, there's so many of them. And obviously the <laughs> big difficulty was separating out which ones were fictional as opposed to which ones were real words so a couple of our members in the book club picked out ones that were fictional that were great like obscenothrobe and anthrodegenerate um i think i'm gonna go with dan alexander's word because i think it's such a such a fun word uh which is decorticate 
which basically means to be peeled. <laughs> I and had so to one of the demons is yep. <laughs> peeling, peeling, uh, you know, one of the uh, one of the victims. So peeling, you, when you want to peel your player characters like a banana, you may decorticate them. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And Jason, do you have a word you would like to put forward? Yeah, I I picked a fake word also, but a fake word that sounds like a real word. So I chose skulldugger, which was the profession of one of the uh, 900 NPCs that are in NPCs, the side characters that are encountered um, <laughs> in the story. Uh, what I love about this, so, you know, skullduggery is the, is, is an actual word, which means like, yep. you know, treachery or duplicity or whatever. Right. Um, and I got thinking like, well, okay, that made me think like, well, is there a word called skullduggery? Yeah, there's not, I looked it up. There is no word skullduggery. In fact, skullduggery comes from uh, a Scottish word, which is nothing like skullduggery. <laughs> so I was like, okay, so they just, <laughs> They just took an existing word and made a new word out of it. And, but what I think is really interesting is that uh, how literal like it is. Like the person's profession was to dig out skulls and to make them into <laughs> goblets. And so I just thought it was really. I just I was very amused by a word that is a real word, uh, shortening it to be like uh, a new word, but then making it super literal. <laughs> I just, I just exactly. Very. So, yeah. And I also like instead of skull digger, it's skull dugger. Like, I like yeah. the idea that like you're a grave dugger as well. Yeah. Like it's past tense of dig. Yeah. A grave digger is somebody who actively does it. A grave dugger is somebody yeah, who used was, to do that. Retired. Coming out for one last job. <laughs> to dug this skull. <laughs> so, Jason, I'm, I'm making an assumption based on what you were saying earlier about your lack of um, of uh, fantasy reading in the past. I'm guessing you have not read any of the other Jack Vance Dying Earth stories. I have not. And in fact, until I listened to your show, I didn't realize that the main character's name is pronounced uh, uh, Kugel, I guess. I, I've been saying Kugel. Uh, so, <laughs> um, Hoy, do we know if there is a correct quote-unquote correct pronunciation um, i think that's just a learned pronunciation i've always said kugel and i think that was just a learned pronunciation i've never actually oh, okay. heard it like so from, i might be from right Jack it Vance. might be kugel yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm also a big believer that when it's when it's a, a made-up fantasy name the yeah. name is whatever you <laughs> that's want fair it to yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well actually i mean there was well, a like if you say Kugel and Kugel, like to me, Kugel is easier to say, especially if you say Kugel the clever. Like Kugel right. the clever flows better to me than Kugel the clever. Like it's a harder yeah. thing mm-hmm. to, for me at least, to wrap my tongue around. Right. But yeah, right. yeah. I do remember there was also a um, fairly uh, common uh, Twitter thought going around, which is actually a good one for once, saying that you know if you mispronounce words that are difficult, it's just a sign that you actually probably have read a lot and just haven't heard these words yeah, in real yeah. life you know so it's a more generous interpretation on that regard um but you had mentioned since you are not generally a fantasy reader and you haven't read the other jack vance books so what is it like coming into this book sort of essentially cold well i think you saw my tweet uh earlier last week where i was like i can't decide if this is the dumbest shit i've ever read in my life or it's completely brilliant um <laughs> and i think i'm still in that space um i i was reading this and i remember thinking like all these characters should be Muppets and, and Kugel <laughs> right. is the one human, right? Like in the rest are Muppets. Like that's what it felt like to me, you know, like, like um, it was all plot. Uh, it's just plot, 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 plot. And then and it's going at a really breakneck pace to get to the end. Um, there's an incredible number of things that happen in a fairly slim space. Um, and it all felt a little corny, but having said all that, I did frequently find myself um, 
being uh, perhaps against my, uh, uh, perhaps unwillingly, like being like quite amused by a lot of it. Like a lot of it was very, very funny. A lot of it was um, like, it took me a minute to get over like the, the kind of like stupid naming conventions of the one city called Waddalog. I was like, okay, this is super dumb. But then like, I just got, but then I got thinking about like, well, there's a whole like culture here. They've kind of like, you know, they have this like strange religion and, 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 and some of like the sort of like choices that seemed a little goofy to me actually started to be like kind of funny. And then, and I almost felt like the author was kind of like winking a little bit, you know, like saying oh, yeah. like, uh, like, 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 I get it too. Like we're in on the joke together, right? It kind of had that feeling. Yeah. And so, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it was, it was enjoyable. Actually, I enjoyed reading it. Um, mm-hmm. it. And it certainly doesn't overstay its welcome, but it was, um, it was just like lots, it was like set piece, set piece, set piece, set piece done, you know? And so that was mm-hmm. interesting mm-hmm. to me. Yeah. Um, and you also mentioned that you're a reader of uh, Lovecraftian horror. And I do. How yeah. did the sort of horror elements of this book strike you? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that's the thing. I think, I don't know if you've ever like um I can't remember who said this, but someone someone uh it might have been game designer Brett Gillen, I don't remember, but uh someone once said that like all fantasy role-playing games should be horror because mm-hmm. if you think even a little bit about like the things that are happening, like if you just look at the monstrous manual and take the monstrous manual like at face value, it, it all of it should be terrifying, right? Like mm-hmm. these are terrifying yeah. things, right? And so uh, but of course, when most people play role-playing games, especially fantasy games, they don't present it in a horror context. And so that was kind of my feeling here. There were things that were like horrifying, like the cannibal society or the, um, uh, well, or that, that, that sort of like, uh, that birth of the imp that was about three quarters of the way through the book. Like there's things that were like kind of on their face. If you had no other context would be really scary, but then they're yeah. in this context and they kind of ceased being scary <laughs> because they were in this sort of like, like lighter, more like uh, uh kind of weird fantasy, like kind of context. And so, um, but I would frequently find myself like just pausing and thinking like, okay, on the face of it, this is a kind of a, this is being presented as a joke, this like birth of this imp. Right. But think about that for a minute. There's a woman who has been impregnated with an imp and she's giving birth to it. And like, you know, like it's kind of fundamentally horrifying. And so, mm-hmm. um, but, but, but as presented, it didn't feel particularly scary now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Also, I realized that we forgot to ask you which books you would recommend our listeners uh, oh, check out yeah. for inspiration for their gaming. And oh, I'd love sure. to hear that answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, so I mostly do lots of horror gaming. I'm, I'm a horror GM. I'm a horror game writer. And so um, I do think that like, I do think that a lot of fantasy games are, are uh, sometimes a little bit of horror can go a long way and make a very memorable mm-hmm. experience. I'll just say some of the things I've read recently, which I really loved. Um, I, recently read a book from 2020 called Mexican Gothic. Um, I can't recall the name of the author, but it's essentially like a kind of Gothic horror novel with like very, very strong, like kind of cosmic horror elements underneath right, it. Uh, um, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's uh, Sylvia Moreno. Uh, so, thank you. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. And she has a new one out too, which I haven't read yeah. yet, but um, uh, really, really great. And what I love about that is it is so, um, it kind of takes like genre elements that we 
kind of know a lot and kind of recontextualizes them and puts them in a new context. And I always think that's smart to do. I think anytime you're doing any kind of game running or game creating, anytime you can take a trope or a genre convention and put it in a different context, you, you come up with something that I think is, is feels fresher and better. Right. And so that's kind of my, that would be my recommendation. I, 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 I found myself being very delighted and surprised by that novel. So, yeah. Very cool. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And then um, going to your experiences with reading this, it is interesting that Kugel feels like the most human of these characters because <laughs> we do have two Dying Earth um, books prior to this by Jack Vance. And the first one, we don't have Kugel in it at all. And it's just, it's a book called The Dying Earth. And it's very much each, each chapter, you're following different protagonists and each one has its own different kind of set pieces. And it's very like picaresque and stunning beautiful beautiful collection Mm, really interesting stories really cool world building and then the second book is the eyes of the overlord and kugel is our protagonist or antagonist Mm. um in 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 all of those stories and um it's a fix-up where they just kind of put all these short stories together and and kind of make it a novel yeah yeah so it feels very much like set piece to set piece but the thing about the eyes of the overworld is kugel is a is a is an antisocial criminal <laughs> bastard right, yeah. who um, is constantly conniving and manipulating every situation to his best advantage, and it always bites him in the ass, and like and shit always turns out really poorly for him. And that's part of what's like what makes those stories so enjoyable and so entertaining. And one thing that was rough for me with this, and I've since you don't really know the character, I, I don't imagine that that was something that, that was challenging for you. But what, what was challenging for me was having this character now have buddies that he's like traveling with. He's hardly in it, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, <laughs> I, I was like, I was, I was actually like really surprised by how little Kugel there was. I was like ready for this to be a, you know, I was, I, I, I kind of knew Kugel the clever, even though I never read the books. You, you yeah. can't be in this hobby for any amount of time and not at least understand the basics. Right. And, um, and I was, and if, and none of it felt, there was very little Kugel and the things he did felt kind of clever, but not really. <laughs> um, it mostly, <laughs> it mostly felt like all these other people to me, you know? So it was almost more like Kugel was almost like more like a cipher. Like Kugel was just our, our way of being yeah. injected into this story with all these other characters, which is why I said it felt kind of like the Muppets because like the human is like the, the human character in a Muppets episode is like just the way that we understand the Muppets. Right. right. So, it's like, yeah. right. It's, and you're the straight man. Yeah, yeah exactly. The... Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah. I know that Jack Vance did uh, give his permission to have Michael Shea write in this world. And I know this was Michael Shea's first piece of published writing. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, but but one thing that I think is interesting is after this book came out, about um, nine years after this book came out, Jack Vance did write a sequel to Eyes of the Overworld called Kugel Saga. Mm. And that story also starts right where the Eyes of the Overworld ends. So <laughs> in, so if you read the two Jack Vance Kugel stories, there is no space mm. for this Michael Shea story to actually have oh, existed. Oh. And I'm wondering if in some way there's some shade in there mm. and that's, and that's Jack Vance kind of disowning that story and saying that that is, that is fan fiction. That is not a part of the official story. I line. could see that. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, interesting. That's interesting. What are your thoughts that. on that? Hoy? Um, I don't think shade um, because 
I mean, he's he's known for being pretty sardonic, Jack Vance. So I think if he felt like that that story was really not up to muster, he would have said so earlier. Um, I think, he, and he was also pretty protective of his books later on and wanted different editions. So I just felt like he just wanted to do something. Like he now had an idea of what he wanted to do with Kugel, and it was not what Michael Shea had ended up doing. So he was just going to go ahead and do it. Mm. And you know, the other thing, given the way that publishing worked back then, you know, stuff didn't get republished that often if it wasn't a huge seller. So it was just going to go the way of the dinosaur. But now with, you know, ebooks and people wanting to get all sorts of ephemera, uh, you know, brought back um, that the sort of Vance and uh, Spatterlight Press is basically a, a, a sort of a collective project to bring Vance's stuff back in sort of definitive editions. And so now they have all these peripheral things that were also Vance tributes that, you know, were approved by him and sort of brought back into the fold as like, hey, this is an interesting bit of ephemera that you can read if you really want more. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think shade necessarily, but I think it was definitely him saying, yeah, no, that's not what I want to do. I have a different idea now and this is what I'm going to do. And yeah. Because, um, you know, because that was still, was only like a year after uh, Shea had written um, uh, Niftaline and it's not like you've never heard Shea come back and say, oh yeah, he completely you know, blew my book out of the water. Not that he should, because that was his first, you know, he should be grateful for that opportunity. Sorry, anyway. what was a year after he wrote uh, Niftaline? Uh, Kugel's Kaga was like a year after Niftaline. Oh, right? oh, yeah. Right, right. So, um, so I, yeah, so I don't think Shade. I think just more or less like, here's what I want to do. This is my character. I'm going back to it. I'm, I'm, I'm reclaiming him. And, yeah. And, and so that's, that's what I think. Gotcha. But I'd say overall, I did enjoy reading this book. I didn't enjoy it anywhere near as much as I enjoyed the Dying Earth stories by Jack Vance, but it was a good read. Um, I, I, there was, it, it did have some kind of weird tonal shifts that were kind of hard to follow um at times but we do have these like moments of brilliance where we have mm-hmm. really cool world building yeah. really cool ideas that are inje- injected in there and it was i i feel like this book was worth reading it at the very least to kind of get to those really inspired moments but overall i don't know that this is a book that i loved or that i would tell anybody oh you have to read quest for symbolists yeah. i'm probably not going to be doing that <laughs> right. Right. what are your thoughts hoy um, I think that we sort of came to a mini consensus in the patron book club, or which is a, a thing we have for our patrons prior to the recording of the main episode, um, which is that this is, um, as Michael Shea's first published work, it was him learning to become Michael Shea. Mm. So it starts off as a Vance book. And maybe I would say, you could start saying maybe with the cannibal farm, but certainly by the time they go into the mythic underworld, yes, um, it, it becomes a full-on Michael Shea book. Yeah, um, and up up to that, it's a, a Jack Vance tribute, and a pretty good Jack Vance tribute, I have to say. Not perfect, but pretty yeah. good, especially if it was your B first plus. Publisher. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it is Michael Shea becoming Michael Shea, and that uh, a large number of things that he later finds full voice in in the book Niftaline, and uh, which comes out in 1982, are here present as elements um this mythic underworld this uh sort of very sort of um broigle hieronymous bosch sort of landscapes oh, that he's yeah. creating yeah. you yeah. know and these very sort of weird monstrosities this yeah, is him and like demons and body horror right right with also it's but it's also still like a fantasy hero kind of traveling through this like horrific demon underworld right right and on top of sort of the more fantastic elements um, and, you know, I don't want to belabor this, but I feel like having read a, a decent amount of Michael Shea now that I start to see also some of his sort of 
more real life concerns that have played out through this book. It's very light here and becomes more evident in the other books. But he was, um, for a writer, he had also a very sort of diverse working class background. He was an ESL teacher. He was a construction worker. He was a night clerk at an SRO for many years, um, among other things. Uh, so he has starts to introduce some of those elements. It's, it's lighter here than in some his subsequent books. But one of the things that is very common in his books is that at each uh, new place they go to, he's very interested in talking about their core economic activity, <laughs> right, of the place. Yeah. So the cannibals, like, oh, well, it's not enough just to eat people. How are we going to make sure we have an apartment? Right, because we have yeah. to plant them, and yeah. then they'll just grow more yeah. arms and legs, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and then, uh, Jeff, you mentioned that it also seemed very un-Kugel-like, uh, because Kugel is this loner bastard who just, like, takes advantage of the situation every opportunity, yet here he subordinates himself to basically a lawful neutral character, Right. This like completely officious mumbersal minor <laughs> bureaucrat and becomes member of the party, but again, who's really our main character? Who's really our main yeah, character? Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, but this is also, I believe, is a Michael Shea concern of people who are sort of disparate and often at the uh, fringes of society, sort of coming together. And this is very evident in his sort of Lovecraftian horror fiction, which is a lot of which is set in the present day in sort of the Tenderloin district of San Francisco. Um, or what was the present day at the time he was writing, uh, of people who were like street life, uh, you know, minor drug dealers, uh, sex workers, and stuff like that. So this is a thing that I think is a thing that's starting to pull together. Um, and again, it's very, very early days yet. So if you're not looking for it, I don't think it's a, a major thing, but you can see the threads of him becoming Michael Shea across the board. Mm. Yeah. So Jason, as you were reading this collection, um, what really like, was there like a part that you found was really successful that worked mm-hmm. really well for you? Well, I actually I really did enjoy the, uh, the 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 Cannibal Garden. I thought that was really quite great, and that was actually oh, when yeah. the book. That, I think that was probably when I first started to warm up to the book. Like up until that point, I was I was like, okay, this is kind of like a um, you know, this feels very uh, you know, it, it's it's very plot focused it's very like I, I feel like maybe i'm missing some context here but it's kind of going fine and then we got to that part and i that's when i first felt like the author was sort of inviting me in with the humor mm. of it and um because it was very funny it was a gruesome situation but quite funny and um, yeah. and that made it more gruesome in it you know right like because because mm-hmm. i was invited into that gruesomeness right and um and so that was a standout but i actually have to say the part my favorite part of the book um, is actually when they find symbolists. I love the end. Uh, to me, the end was totally, totally quite different from the rest of the book. Um, but it it had a sort of like it felt awe inspiring, and uh, it, it had a vastness and a sort of like uh, a sort of like weird majesty to it that I was I was really drawn in by that. Like I wanted to I wanted to know where that story was going to go. I wanted to know what happened with that mm. Titan took off to find another world right i was like wow this is right. like the like this this feels like the setup to something really cool you know um that was the part that really that, that really like resonated with me quite a lot and um and 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 in some sense it almost like in some sense the whole rest of the book almost felt like a setup for that like it felt to me it felt like the payoff you know even though it was such a tonal shift it it, it kind of suddenly put the whole thing in perspective, right? Like the, the earth is dying, right? And we've seen evidence of it 
throughout, and we're told that right frequently about the sun and everything. And we see this sort of like strange blasted landscape. It's a very like the, the Bashian elements are very very strong, right? Like all that stuff is coming through, and and it ends in this like this like really like kind of um, almost like strange cosmic spiritual like uh egress from all of it right which just felt like the right i don't know it felt like a good payoff to me i really was like taken in by that quite a lot i want i wanted to read the rest of that story like i want to know what symbolist was up to <laughs> so yeah, yeah that's cool yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah i i will make a um a confession which is that um i the last part of the book, I kind of skimmed through. Yeah, really? I didn't get to read it super carefully. And that's, I was worried I wasn't gonna be able to finish it. And often what I do when I'm having kind of a hard time getting into something, I will listen to the audiobook as I read, but there's no audiobook of the version of this. So I was left to my own devices with this. <laughs> and um, yesterday I was supposed to be finishing up that last chapter and I was very hungover yesterday. <laughs> and um, I was trying and I did it as much as I could, but I don't think I ended up experiencing the full majesty I think of it's the, best the chapter, final part. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think you were interesting because not, not only you mentioned majesty, it's, it's actually kind of philosophical kind of deep this last mm-hmm. brand because like uh Gun- Gunbad, is that right the woman she's like why don't you just save the world right and he goes, yeah you know yeah. you have all this power and he yeah. goes no no this world is it's had its day it's and it's yeah. full of wickedness it's, it's i time have that quote actually her icy quiet <laughs> love yeah. that like yeah. where was that in the rest of the book like i was like man that is good yeah Right. And the Gunrock also has another great yeah. moment when she's asking for her, you know, when they're asking for all their rewards. So this is very Wizard of Oz at the end, right? Like, uh, you know, you're, you're all, three of you are horrible, but we, you know, you've made this quest and you're still going to get this reward, you know, <laughs> right? Um, and so she just says, hey, I wish transport to some center of humanity with security of life and limb prevails. I also wish sufficient wealth to purchase me an untroubled life. Uh, you have said we all desired power, for my, but for my part, all I wish is what I have named. And he goes, the symbolist goes, you speak without considering, madam. In these times, the vast majority of Earth live meagerly by toil in the shadow of violent death. In asking for wealth and security, you are asking for the power to live. Rare and difficult to come by. <laughs> that's good. Right? Yeah, that's good. Right? Right. Right. And mm-hmm. she comes back with actually something not bad, too, though. She goes, mere sophistry. All that can reasonably ask of one is that he seek his own necessities. <laughs> right? Right? So that's a great little sequence in there. Yeah. So I'd like to share my favorite part, but I also want to use it as a segue into the gaming side of this conversation. So I really like the part where after they leave the um, high stakes game of strip poker and they end up getting to this new this new town. Um, I like that one of the first things we learn is that anybody who has survived that high stakes game of strip poker and has walked out naked and stumbled into this town are then arrested and executed because one of their main crimes in this town is for carnality. (laughs) carnality. (laughs) So I already thought that was a hilarious thing to kind of have set up. Deeply ironic. And it's that kind of irony that's very present in eyes of the overworld constantly. (laughs) Um, But I also, I just thought that that civilization was a great example of like this like dying earth world building that we see where in every culture each little each little town has its own very unique set of philosophies and beliefs and laws and i thought that like this place where like all of the women 
are just like massively obese because of these like fancy um, uh, newts that they eat. And that the men who are all a member of this church all had these different stones on their heads of various sizes and weights that like tell you how pious they are in their religion and that like the two things that are like most wrong in this world um that are that that are most outlawed are carnality and sorcery (laughs) i thought all of that was really cool and then to also have this exorcism story thrown in here as well where like there's all this like demon (laughs) cuckolding happening which i wasn't (laughs) expecting to be a a subplot in this at all (laughs) but how we have like this woman who's like given birth to a litter of black rats but she like raises them as their own (laughs) and they just all felt like this this would be a great a great setting in any kind of a sandbox environment (laughs) and it also just like i Mm -hmm. i want a really cool gaming supplement that I can roll up random towns that are wild and ridiculous and you can get a town like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it felt extremely OSR. Like it felt like really OSR, very hex crawly. Um I uh, I actually I think I think I think part of the reason why I find my, I found myself somewhat frustrated by the pace of the book, which in my opinion was too fast, um is precisely because I wanted to hang out with the densities a little bit longer. I wanted to hang out with millions gather a little bit longer. I want, you know, I wanted to like know more, you know, I thought the, you know, there was just, but it was like, we're just, it was like, we're here, we're gone. We're here. You know, it was just moving so quickly through it. And, um, so, but, but yeah, but I I think that's probably a credit to the, to the world building that was happening. I just wish it, it kind of hung out in some of those places a little bit more. (laughs) I like there was one more uh, thing that I just remembered about the hanging out with the major densities too, was that, up till now, they've been more or less immune to demonic possession because they have no imaginations whatsoever. <laughs> whereas the, the local, the, the bordering villages and towns. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Yeah. And that's very much a thing that you get in the classic Jack Vance, Dying Earth stories is you get these wild civilizations and you spend very little time with them. And it just kind of, and it, it and the way that he does it by hopping from one to the next, it, it does a great job of illustrating that this world is vast and every group of peoples is so different from the next. And I love that. But also something that you see quite a bit in those Dying Earth stories is super science. And there is no super science in, in this book at all. And I'm curious, Jason, how do you feel about super science in your fantasy gaming? Maybe define super science for me. What is that? It can be lots of things. It can be flying cars or insane, oh, insane AIs or. Mm, I see. Yeah. Um, well, I'm not. I, Think I'm, He-Man. I'm, oh, oh, okay. Or uh, Thunder. Well, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So um, actually, I don't know if this is what really what the question you're asking is, but I, I've I've loved certain settings that kind of do this in gaming, right? Um, so on my podcast, uh, Fear of a Black Dragon, we t- we review uh, OSR and old school uh, adventure modules, right? And you know, one of the books that is uh, extremely problematic in lots of ways, if I'm being honest, um, and is by uh, a publisher who is somewhat publisher non grata at this point. But uh, the Carcosa book from the early 2000s is that right like it is it is like i've always liked to say if you took like if you took masters of the universe like seriously Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know like and made a setting out of it i feel like this i feel like it would be carcosa right like it would be that like it's it's snake men and necromancers and robot dinosaurs and all that like like smashed together on this blasted planet and um i love that i think that's a lot of fun um now there's a lot of gross stuff in that book too but you know it's 
It's undeniably a really particular artistic vision. Right, right. <laughs> and that's, as far as like that, uh, you know, she, perfect example so, what you're talking uh, about, where something um, can shade from absurdity to horror in an instant. All right. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that this book felt kind of OSR, specifically something that, you know, it's something very lightly sketched. It feels almost like a lot like the Wilderlands book, Jeff. Uh, you get like one or two sentences, like, "Oh, I want to know more about oh, yeah. that." well that's for you to figure out or that's for you to present at the table right mm-hmm. and carcosa is a little bit the same way and that's yeah. a deliberate callback to that kind of that kind of writing game oh, yeah. writing um mm-hmm. and and with this book as well yeah um uh, quest for symbolists so jason um you know as somebody who kind of more naturally gears towards a powered by the apocalypse style game is there stuff that you were inspired by in this that you could see stealing and kind of putting into a powered by the apocalypse style fantasy game or horror game <laughs> I mean, there have not been very many good PBTA uh, fantasy games, really, if I'm being honest. It's not really uh, – um, I think because PBTA is so like concerned with genre emulation and no genre has been emulated more than the fantasy genre in gaming. And so it, there hasn't been much attempt to do fantasy, so it kind of does other genres. Um, and so in a PBTA context, I don't think there are too many PBTA games that really like do what this story is doing, if I'm being honest. Um but that said, I do think that um, I do think to some degree, powered by the apocalypse games are much more about interesting set pieces, right? It's 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 not about like um, it's not really about hard numbers, and it's not really about like uh, precise measurements of time or space. You know, it's more about we're watching the movie, and here are like the six really good scenes of the movie. We're going to role play those six really good scenes, yeah. right? Um, and so, in that sense, um, I, I think that this book actually felt really PBTA in a lot of ways because because it it doesn't concern itself too much with the with the transition bits, <laughs> you know, it doesn't concern itself too much with the journey bits. Yeah. It's like they journeyed and now they're here and here's a cool thing happening and now then they ran away and now they're this new cool thing happening, right? And so, just in terms of like kind of cinematic pacing. Um, I think there's a lot to be learned in this book, you know, like I think that most games could stand to have a slightly more cinematic pace to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just a personal preference, yeah. but, um, but yeah, I, I think there's something to be said about in role-playing games in general. And I think powered by the apocalypse games specifically are good at this. There's something to be said about like, let's just focus on the good parts, <laughs> you know, let's just focus on the really cool stuff, you know, because I think that's what quest for symbols does. It gives you, just the really cool parts and maybe none of the rest of it. Yeah. <laughs> maybe a little too little of the rest of it, in my opinion. But yeah. And is there like a specific set piece or character or monster or situation that you think would be fun to kind of lift from this and put into one of your own games? Oh gosh. Oh, I'd have to think about that for a bit. Cool. I, I can ask Hoy that while you think about it. Yeah. Maybe, Hoy, maybe what are your thoughts? Answer. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, what, a specific set piece that I would steal. Yeah. A set piece or a situation or anything yeah. from this book that you'd want to put into one of your games. Yeah. Um, I love the demon customs house. I thought that was great. Um, and then the two wizards, you know, and then the, the scene, I think a lot of people love was the, the house inside the bubble with oh, the yeah. exploding toads. Oh, and the exploding yeah, that was really cool. like that. Yeah. Um, but actually I wanted to build on and sort of follow up something you mentioned. So like, you know, seeing the highlights and PBTA is geared towards that. And also that you mentioned it was a personal preference. But also because of the gauntlet being one of sort of ahead of the curve with sort of online gaming, you know, Mm -hmm. and obviously that has exploded because of COVID. Sure. I wonder if that also, because when you're at the table, especially when we were younger, it feels like we had all the time in the world. But when you're in online, it's, 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 it's. 
pulls on a different party and you're like, okay, I only feel like I have two hours. I can't sit here for four hours looking at a screen. And so let's, let's yeah, do the good stuff, yeah, you know? Yeah, and, yeah. You know um, That's an interesting thought. I mean, I, um, I'm sure there's probably some of that. I mean, I, I mean, I do think PBTA games and more story focused games are better online just because they don't have a lot of like physical components that, mm. that you have to be concerned with. And therefore they're kind of easier to do than some of, you know, unless you have like a really, really, uh, a very good skillful roll 20 GM or something, or using a virtual tabletop to handle all that stuff. It's easier. It's easier just to talk. Yeah. You know? right. or, <laughs> or if you're doing full theater of the mind. Well, exactly. I don't do any minis and battle mats. And, yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. A, I'm a theater of the mind uh, guy. And I, and I, and I, and so, yeah, so there's that, that there's, that's, that's probably more the main concern as far as that goes in my mind. Um, having said that though, I just think that there's like something to be said about just getting stuff done, you know, like there's so many like adventure modules out there. There's so many like games There's so many things to experience and do. And I do think, in my opinion, uh, I think that like some of the more crunchier traditional systems, you sometimes just can't finish things, you know, and I sure. find that very frustrating, right? Like I don't have that problem at all. Like I, I review, you know, two modules a month that, you know, and, and, uh, and we play through them and we, and we do the whole thing. And I run way more than that, you know, like, um, and, and, and I, and I think it's because the systems that I choose are, are more geared towards, they are more geared towards like the big moments, the big, you know, the more cinematic pacing, uh, not getting too concerned with the details. Um, but nevertheless exploring the characters in a really interesting way, right? Like the, like the rich sort of character development. Um, but yeah. But to get back to your question, now that I thought about it, um, I quite love the whole setting of the densities, the the, the waterlog. Um, I yeah. don't like that name. I would change that name. The, the whole the whole setup felt a little fat phobic. But like setting aside that though, I I just there was something just so deeply ironic about that city and their belief system, and uh, and I feel like there's more story to tell there. Like I want to, I, I really like I said. I wanted to like spend more time in each of these set pieces. They were the, the group ran away from them too quickly from, from yeah. my taste, you know? So I, I feel like there's a lot of like, I feel like with the right system, especially in your, if you're asking the right questions, you can really do some cool stuff in some of these, these, these mm-hmm. settings. But yeah, I also thought a cool moment that I would, that I, I think would be fun to kind of steal and tweak it and make it my own is earlier in the book. Um, it's like actually maybe the first thing that ca- they kind of strike out and go do is when um, they join that caravan, then they're all and all the, everybody in the caravan has these big uh, cloaks with their hoods up. But then they discover that underneath yes. it, they have these like little metal little skull plate. caps. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it turns out that these metal skull caps allow them to stay invisible to the cannibals. Mm-hmm. But intentionally, they didn't give those metal skull caps to Kugel and his traveling companion uh, right. to Mumber to Mumber Soul, uh, right. because they kind of wanted them to be the bait. Uh, and, but they of course figure that out and then they end up getting their own caps and then like discard all of the other ones that are worthwhile and give them fake ones and they all end up getting eaten up. But I think something like that would be a really fun thing to kind of figure out a way to kind of bring your own version of that in. Mm-hmm. And also, don't forget, they gave all the enlistees these uniform cloaks that had all these straps on them that were ultimately end up being like bondage suits for them, which right. is hilarious too. Yeah, <laughs> I frequently enjoy adventure modules that um, uh, Tom Tom McGrenery, my co-host on Fear of Black Dragon, um, we refer to adventure modules. Uh, some some of them we refer to as uh, dark ride modules. And what we mean by that is, if you think about amusement parks, they they have those dark rides where you like get on the ride, yeah, and. And it's not like a fast ride. You're just slowly going through 
scene by scene and looking at things, you know? And sometimes there are adventure modules that are like that. Um, they almost have like a dark ride feel. And uh, sometimes that's good. Sometimes it's bad. It kind of depends on what you're kind of going for in the gameplay, I guess. It can feel almost literally railroady in some ways. But like, I love the idea of a module where you are able to wander through the cannibal fortress and not be perceived. And it's almost like a mystery game. Like you are like roaming through the halls and because they can't see you, but you can see them, you, you get to like interact with the setting in a different way. Right. So it's not Mm. about fighting. It's not about escaping. It's not about like finding treasure necessarily. Even it's about just experiencing the environment and maybe solving some kind of mystery in the environment. I think that would be a super cool gameplay experience, um, you know, as a, as a one-off, you know, Um, I think that could be super cool. And the, and the sort of like device of the, the little skull cap is very good. Yeah. I think it's a cool idea. Also, in general, it just seems like the collection of gold and treasure was not really something that anybody was really doing a lot of in this book, nor did it really seem to be something that if they did have a bunch of it, it would have been that helpful anyways. And I kind of like that we have a story where like when when they want to gain entrance to the underworld, they have to have like some kind of an amulet uh, to to trade with the guardians of that. And I, I like the idea of coming up with more interesting ways than sacks full of gold for characters to have to kind of um, trade in to kind of I get like whatever knowledge, that next- knowledge was so valuable, right? Like yeah. information was frequently the valuable thing, right? Mm-hmm. And that kind of makes sense if you think about a setting where like, in a setting where we all know, we know it's dying, like it's literally called the dying earth. Like if, if we all know that, you probably wouldn't be as concerned about money, right? You'd yeah. be concerned about your your petty vengeances and your, you know, and you know, that yeah, makes no sense to me. Yeah. Right. Although uh, it also added up one of the funny, good comedic moments Jeff you're talking about. Remember when they enter the underworld, they can't have anything stolen on them. Yes. Right. Right. And so Kugel has to like hook the, the gems and the gold that he stole from Lumbersoul back onto Lumbersoul's belt and then yoink them off as soon as they cross the barrier. <laughs> <laughs> totally. So I thought, yeah, but they are stealing something specific, right? It's not usually about gold. As you say, it's knowledge, it's power. Like, oh, here's to create the the imp of uh, whatever, right? And she yeah, has to give yeah. birth to the imp. Well, I also uh, like when Kugel was, or maybe it's Member Soul, I forget who, but one of them was like, so what about this amulet? Because this amulet's stolen. And they're like, oh, well, don't worry about that because we have to deal with that all the time. <laughs> and basically, since you're already calling upon powers of the underworld, like it being returned down here is it being returned to its rightful owner anyway. So right, we right. don't care how you came in possession of those. <laughs> Right, right. Well, I like that the demons are essentially like payday lenders or like repo men, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I did think the culture of um, the the million, what is it called? The million what? Millions gather. The millions gather. Millions gather. Yeah, I thought yeah. I thought that whole um, world building around that stuff was really cool too, how everybody's um, completely kind of corrupted by their spell, by, by their spell dealing and... Um, trading for more and more powers just to enact their petty vengeances. And now they're like deeper and deeper in debt to these demons. I just thought that was also a really cool setting. But again, I think that's what made the ending so good. Like, because, um, because, because you almost got the impression, like, like I was like, really, I was like really with symbolists. I was like, yeah, symbolists, I get it. Like, 
this place is fucked. We've just spent 180 pages seeing how fucked it is, <laughs> and now we're done. You know, it felt right. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, Symbolist was like, yeah, okay, this is uh, this is what uh, basically he's saying, like, yeah, this is uh, this is the end result of end, this is end stage capitalism. Let's get that here. <laughs> Let's get something new, right? And they they're literally becoming part of this collective, right? Because they're being the. Uh, you know, Symbolist and, and uh, Gunruck and uh, Mumbrasol are getting absorbed into the Titan and their memories are in there and they're part of this giant collective and their memories can be, you know, experienced over and over again, both as individuals and collectively. Um, so, I, again, I think that points to, uh, like, uh, Vance would have done it very sardonically and said, like, they're just as bad off as, as you know, Kugel or the people who stayed. But I think... Um, Shay was slightly more idealistic in that regard because uh and so i think that was again more of his sort of working class tendencies jumping through there um and again becoming more obvious in some of his later books uh, and whereas vance has a very uh like Shay to me seems to have like he looks at the dark side but he still ha- and he, he fully acknowledges the dark side and he's sympathetic with people who are on the margins but he also has um a, a sort of a hope for it whereas uh, vance is generally quite uh, pessimistic about human nature and, and is yeah. amused by it mm-hmm. rather than uh, yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. thinking it'd be redeemed in any way so symbolist is thinking that something can be redeemed but not this world right mm-hmm. you, know, you know or something can be preserved but not this world right? yeah mm-hmm. well yeah. jason do you have any um anything else about this book you wanted to discuss before we start wrapping things up um hmm I don't think so. I think we've covered a lot of really good territory. I will say I was very struck by – I don't know if this is just a genre thing or not. Maybe you, you both can tell me more. I was really struck by how it didn't really feel um, – there wasn't. it didn't really feel like there were any big themes holding it together. Uh, like in a lot of writing, you expect there to be like a thematic concern that like runs through the writing, right? Um, and I was struck by how there did, it didn't really feel like there was anything like that in this. That that we were really truly just meant to be almost like uh, it was almost meant to be like more just like experiential. Like we were just in the middle of it, and that's kind of why it felt kind of OSR to be honest, in a way, because the OSR just wants to drop you in the middle and see what happens, right? It kind of had that feel. I'm I'm curious if this is just a a convention of the genre like like we don't concern ourselves too much with theme as much as we concern ourselves with just like being in the middle of it and reacting and seeing what happens i don't know i don't know if that makes any sense but that struck me as a thing when i was reading right. it mm-hmm. yeah i don't unless i just missed the themes i don't know well i mean i mean you hit upon the theme at the end with what symbolist was talking about or at least that section of the theme I mean, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah well that's why, that's why i said it felt kind of like a payoff i was like oh we actually have yeah. there's actually something here there's a message right. here Right, right, right. I think kind of like, that yeah. might be the difference between like swords and sorcery and high fantasy. You know, when we look at what you're getting out of a Conan story or what yeah. you're getting out of a Fathra and the Grey Master story is very a very different experience than what you're getting out of the Lord of the Rings or the Wheel of Time or Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Um, I think oftentimes high fantasy is looking to tell these much bigger stories with these like really big overarching themes, themes where I yeah. think a lot of swords and sorcery is like, let's like pick a cool character and or a cool set piece and or a cool item and or a cool idea for a monster. And let's kind of throw them all together and kind of see what happens, which mm-hmm. I, I think it, it tends to be much more on the micro where, um, where I think high fantasy tends to be much more on the macro. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's, that sounds right. Right. And, um, and, or at least looking at it at an observational kind of way. Right. And again, a lot of swords and sorcery writers were sort of like working writers, working class. You know, we, I get paid by the word and, you know, I actually make my living 
writing this. It's not like I have a, a you know professor of you know dead languages and I write one novel, <laughs> right? And so I, I think there was that element of these people. And as you say, so it's 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 street level, it's micro, um, but it's still so to the point that you're making, Jason. It's not talking about these big themes, but in some ways, it is more engaged to me, sword and sorcerer, or this kind of fiction is more engaged with human nature than these stories about epic mm-hmm. good and evil yeah right yeah right yeah um and so i'm actually curious uh now that you've read this would be your first uh, you haven't read jack vance yet so this no. is your first dying no. story and you haven't read michael shea yet does it make you curious to read more of either at this point well so the thing is you know, it's really funny because I, I, even though I haven't read many books like this, I read tons of stuff like this, right? Like I read lots of adventure modules in this, you know, that are, that are like this frequently just for pleasure. And I watch lots of movies. Um, so I don't have like any particular, like my, uh, my aversion to the genre in books is not necessarily an aversion to the genre more, more broadly, right? It's mostly just the types of books I like to read, um, are, are not really these kinds of books. And I actually think it's because, if I'm being perfectly honest, when I was running like AD&D 2E and then I started reading Dragonlance, I was like, I don't know. I yeah. don't know, man. The story, the stories <laughs> we're telling at our table are better. And, right, right. and Jason, I, I would, I would, I would love you know. to take a moment and and share with you kind of some of my kind of my thesis thought thought on that, yeah. which is I, I I always start with the hyperbolic statement, which is that Dungeons and Dragons destroyed fantasy fiction. But what what I mean by that is like when D and D came along, it all became super codified. Where prior mm-hmm. to that, in the pre Dungeons and Dragons age. Horror, fantasy, sci-fi, they weren't necessarily mm-hmm. these super discrete genres. You had just like weird tales, these stories that yeah, were like, yeah. they were all of those things all at once. And it wasn't until I started reading that stuff that I actually started getting excited about the fantasy genre. Yeah, um, yeah. Also, I'll let you know that I um, I very um, uh, compulsively, after we each read each one of these stories, I place them in my overall list of the one, because this is episode 125. So we've read 125 books. I have them yeah. ranked in order from one to 125. <laughs> and every time I read a new one, I insert it somewhere else. I want you yeah. to know this book ranked at 93 for me, which okay. doesn't mean it's bad. It's just we've read a yeah. lot much be- a lot better stuff. Mike, yeah. uh, Michael Shea's Nif the Lean was 77, which I think is going to be way lower than Hoy's. But I want you to know yeah. that The Dying Earth is four. And okay. I said the overworld yeah. is two. Okay, yeah. So those I, I, two books are way up there for me. Yeah, yeah I would definitely read them. I, because I, 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 I found some things to really like in this, even though it's not really my thing. But having, but even when I, even saying it's not really my thing, it kind of is my thing. It's just not in this context is my thing. Yeah, like, I, I like fantasy gaming, and I like, uh, but maybe not like fantasy reading. And I think what it is. I really truly believe it's because I tried to read the Drizzt books and Dragonlance books when I was a kid, and I was just like, I don't know, yeah, I just don't think bad. the stories are that good. They're bad, yeah. And like, and I'm doing, we're doing better stuff at my table, and I'm in high school, <laughs> you know, absolutely, so like, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think I just never got into the book part of it. Um, I just never got into fantasy books, and then well, just I came to the genre almost like, like in a, in a different way. Like I really like the genre, but just in these other like other mediums basically right like, yeah and so i think that's a big part of it for me do, yeah. do you mind if i ask how old you are i'm 44 okay and i'm 42 so we okay. are very close in age yeah. and I, I think you and i grew up in the, the the era where when you would walk into like the fantasy section of walden books it was just a bunch of generic fantasy books that were really trying to market off of dungeons and dragons yeah and yeah. i think you and i kind of grew up in a time where like i just don't think fantasy was as good 
I, I think that maybe be, that might be the case. I, I, I think you might be right because I just remember like, I remember trying it and thinking, mm, I don't know. I'd rather just game Yeah, and I'm having more fun doing right. the gaming and I don't get anything out of the books. And right. so I just never kind of got into fantasy yeah. and, um, yeah, as, right. as, as, a, as a reading thing. And I'm not saying right that now. there wasn't good fantasy at that time, but if yeah. you're just looking at a wall of books in a, in a, in a fantasy section of Walden books, a yeah. lot of it was like very much this like yeah. stuff they were just churning right. out. Right. But I in recent years, you know, I've, I've started, I'm, I'm on book two of the Gentleman Bastard series. Mm-hmm. I love that. That's so good. Like if, if, if all fantasy was like that, that's all right. I read. That's, oh, uh, yeah. Scott Lynch, yeah. right? Right. Yeah, it's kind of yeah. cool. Now, um, I think you might have something to that, to that uh, both of you guys, for that time. Since I'm a little bit older, and I was reading fantasy sort of at the tail end of the appendix end period, and then I'm at around the time that you guys are mentioning, um, that's pretty much when I started reading a lot of crime fiction because I, I do feel like the fantasy was kind of had taken mm-hmm. a nosedive mm-hmm. for yeah. a good 10, 15 years. So mm-hmm. I, I think you're right there. Um, it became sort of product and not, you know, mm-hmm. that's very individualistic. Like this book, for better or worse, even though it's, building on jack vance's uh thing it's it's still ultimately kind of individualistic it's like this is a a specific voice this is somebody doing something this is not just you know more product yeah right the quest for simplest right whether it fails or succeeds is another story but cool so um we are running out of time jason if um if people are looking for you online do you want to be found and if so where sure uh i am well you can learn about everything we do in the gauntlet by uh going to our website, gauntlet-rpg.com, or following us on Twitter at gauntletrpg. And then my personal Twitter account is Jason Cordova 6 Cool. Um, yeah. And what are you working on right now? What do you want people to be aware of and to be keeping their eyes open for? Sure. Um, so earlier this year, we did the Kickstarter for Brindlewood Bay. Uh, Brindlewood Bay is um, my game of... Uh, elderly women in a quaint New England town solving murder mysteries. Yes. Um, and yep. as they solve murder mysteries, they start to realize that there is a dark uh, eldritch conspiracy behind all the murders. And so they have to eventually face that eldritch conspiracy. Um, anyway, it was kickstarted earlier this year. Uh, and we are, as the time of this recording, we're just about done with the PDF of the main book, Brindlewood Bay, and that'll be out. And you'll, by the time this lands, this episode lands, you'll be able to pre-order Brindlewood Bay. So yeah, go look for Brindlewood Bay. Awesome. I, I awesome. will definitely be pre-ordering that. That sounds really exciting. Yeah. Um, and Hoy, where can folks find us? Right. Uh, if you'd like to drop us a note, you can do so at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. Uh, if you like what we're doing, please uh, rate us and review us on your podcatcher of choice, such as Google Play or Apple Podcasts. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? Our patrons are able to vote on the books that we are covering for this show. So that's a cool feature that our patrons get. And recently, our patrons spoke and voted for uh, for episode 131. We'll be covering P. Jelly Clark's A Master of Jin. For episode 132, we'll be covering Scott Odin's A Gathering of Ravens. When this episode drops, we will be um, putting up the poll for episode 135. And the theme is going to be books written by Carolyn Stevemer. Uh, Carolyn Stevemer was our guest for the Worm or Boris episode. And it is a shame that we have not covered any of her books yet. So the entire poll is just going to be books written by her that you can choose from. It'll be The Glass Magician, River Rats, when the King Come Ho- Comes Home, and A College of Magics. You can choose from which of those four you would like us to read and discuss. Also, 
our patrons are able to join us for our patron book club recordings. Uh, and today we are joined by Robert Coleman, Tom Lucas, Rick Byrne, Dan Alexander, and Adam Styers. Thank you for your support. I would also like to give a shout out to a few of our other patrons as well. Um, if I'm going to go ahead and reach in the bag here, the names that I'm going to be pulling out are Jesse Byrer, Damis Soklos, uh, Noah Green, Brandon Cruz, Fletcher A. Vradenberg, Jeremy Harper, Matt Hildebrand, Daniel J. Bishop, and Jason White. Thank you all so much for your support. And Thank you. That is the end of our episode. Jason, you are awesome. Thank you for being on. Thanks for having me. Such a pleasure and an honor. All right, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>